Welcome to the Human Design Collective Podcast, where we explore the system as a map of our unique potential, from the mundane to the mystical. If you'd like to dive deeper into your design, we invite you to check out our course and workshop offerings at courses.humandesigncollective.com. In this episode, we're speaking with Ernst Wilhelm, a Vedic astrologer who's been actively teaching since 1996 and has written several books in addition to producing extensive video courses for his astrological school. He brings a wealth of occult, psychological, and humanistic knowledge as well, learned through his own study, research, and practice. He's a mechanic who's gone back to many of the Vedic source texts to reinterpret and discover more precise ways to accurately understand our plight as humans. Ernst shares with us his understanding of the value of traditional astrological techniques, such as the Lajatati Avashtas and the planetary maturations, as well as his take on human design mechanics and the concept of no choice. His view is truly his own and continues to be a living exploration of personal and cosmic truth. Most of our episodes focus on hearing from experts in the human design system. Occasionally, we like to bring in those who have expertise in other systems, as well as enough understanding of human design to have a cross-pollinating conversation. If you've studied many different systems, you've probably found that certain principles of truth repeat among different bodies of knowledge. It's an incredibly rich and validating process to see that we can come to very similar conclusions from different perspectives. Ernst is a truly free-thinking individual who draws from source materials and doesn't shy away from perspectives that work and can be validated through experience no matter what tradition they emerge from. After years of following his revolutionary work in Vedic astrology, we were thrilled to see him posting videos about human design. He is truly a 6-2 sacral generator on the cross of upheaval, and if you stay tuned, you'll see why. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, Ernst, it's great to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining us. This is a real pleasure to speak with you. Hey, it's my pleasure. It's really been great to meet you just in the last five minutes. Thank you. I've been following your work in Vedic astrology for about maybe six or so years now. And I'm, I'm kind of curious how astrology came into your life and what was the starting point for you? Yeah, I kind of had this interest like for 13, 14, 15, I would read the weeklies, you know, the sun sign. And I was like, huh, and I would kind of see if it would work and it didn't really work. But in my local paper, on your birthday itself, it always got this big write-up of you were born on March 28th or March 29th, whatever. I would tell myself, oh yeah, this year I'm gonna read that thing about my chart. And I would forget. And two weeks would go by and I go, oh gosh, I forgot to read it. But the newspaper is already long gone. So luckily I never read that too. And it didn't really make sense to me because there was no astrology. I was raised in the 70s, but by European parents. I mean, there was no, no hippie stuff, no flowers, no marijuana, no Christianity, no God. It was just scientific and maybe a little gardening, you know? But I really was so bothered when I missed that every time. So I really wanted, I felt like there was something for me to know. Two years later, when I was 16, I saw all these astronomy books, like, uh, you know, the table of houses for calculating charts, the ephemeris. And I was like, wow, that you, you calculate all this stuff. You don't just calculate the sun signs, but you calculate planets and houses. And I really wanted to buy those books, but I was, I was broke, like $80, you know? So I didn't. Um, and I was an athlete at the time, and I became a martial artist. And um, the last week I was doing martial arts, I was staying with a friend. Before I moved away from that teacher and 
he told me, he goes, I have a friend who's an astrologer. She could read your chart and she'll just say so many things that will blow you away. And I'm like, okay. We get on the phone back when it was 30 cents a minute long distance. And after 90 minutes, he's because he's paying for it because I was still broke. He's like shooting me off the phone. And I go, I'm sorry, I got to go. And it seemed like she was just warming up after 90 minutes, you know. But she said, I had told her I was driving home the next day and I was going to drive. Her hometown was right between where I was going. I was going on a 1500 mile trip and she was right in between. So she invited me over. I was like, wow. So I drove there. I was like, oh, she's going to read my chart more. Tell me so many things about me. So she got me there. She goes, oh, you must be hungry. That was a long drive. I got some stuff that's vegetarian because I know you're vegetarian. She fed me. Then she finally took me to her little office. And then she whipped out an ephemeris, whipped out a table of houses, showed me how to calculate charts. I like being a good boy. Okay, when are you going to read my chart? <laughs> you know, and I'm doing those calculations. I didn't care about them. I just wanted to know when are we going to get to my chart? Then she gave me this little course manual of hers, and then she put me to bed. She woke me up at 6 a.m. and she kicked me out of the house, you know, <laughs> to get on my journey. She, I was like, what about my chart? You know, I'm here, but she never read it. But somehow she figured she should teach me to do astrology calculations. Since I have the North Node in the seventh house, my life is perfect until I get involved into the seventh house, right? So at the time, my life was perfect because I had never had a girlfriend up to that point. I was like 21, you know? But um, six months later, that changed. A year and a half later, I was hating life. And I called my mom. I said, send me those astrology books. And she sent them to me and I dove into it and it helped me deal with all this relationship stuff and understand why things went this way. I did compatibility. I was still broke. I just sat in the bookstore in LA, like the Bodhi tree, reading astrology books all day long. And after that, I was sold on. It was like, wow, this is what I'm going to do. I mean, this, this helps. This makes a difference. Up until that point, nothing had made such a big difference in my life. And after that, I just immersed myself for three years in Western astrology, started a practice, failed miserably. And I just, I didn't feel like I was prepared that I had the tools. So I quit, ran off to an ashram. And there I had a couple dreams or one dream that made me get involved and decide to try Vedic astrology. So then I ordered this Brihat Parashra Horashastra, which is like a pretty comprehensive Vedic astrology book in Sanskrit with terrible translations. <laughs> And I just started studying that. And as I studied it, I wrote things down, wrote my thoughts on it. And all those thoughts eventually developed in the books. Literally seven months later, I, was, I had an astrology practice when I left the ashram. <laughs> but all just fell into place. Yeah. So it sounds like you mostly studied on your own. I, mean, I haven't had first... any teachers ever. One of the things she said about my chart, she said, you're a teacher looking for a student, not a student looking for a teacher. And that's really been true my entire life. Never had teachers. You know, I had some martial art teachers in a short time. I felt like I had outgrown them in some ways and I moved on. When I was racing bikes, I learned all this nutrition and all these training techniques. And I was 15 years old and I was like telling people in their 20s, some of them who were studying like exercise physiology, you know, how to train better. You know, and they were at campus. I'm still trying to get out of high school. So I just always was able to grasp a lot of information and connect the dots into a bigger picture that I could use. You mentioned this piece about relationships and 
Obviously, that's one of the core issues for most of us humans. How did astrology really help you navigate the relationship issue? Uh, well, what happened was, you know, I had like some core beliefs growing up from the age of like five or six. I remember thinking, there's just one God. There's just one thing that's God. There's not Allah. There's not this. It's, they're just calling the same thing the different name and fighting over it. That was my six-year-old thought, okay? And my other thought was, when you die, you don't just go poof, disappear. There's something. You still know. You know, there's still a knowing that doesn't go away. And the other idea I held on to that I had growing up was you fall in love once. You know, well, that one was proved to be a fallacy. When my things didn't work out with my first girlfriend, I was devastated. I mean, I was like thinking, wow, there's like, I mean, I was like literally almost suicidal. I didn't, I was in so much pain, I just wanted it to end. I was really struggling for a while. But then right when that happened, she had gone to an astrologer and she had a rich old boyfriend who had set her up to see this astrologer and actually bribed the astrologer to say bad things about me. And then this, and then this <laughs> astrologer, I didn't even know that for three years. I found out three years later. So this astrologer, a few months after the reading, said, oh, I haven't sent your charts yet. I need to send your charts. And my girlfriend, oh, you can send me mine, send Ernst to Ernst. So I get this chart, and around it was like her planet, because she had put her planets on, like, just in pencil. And I looked at those planets, and I looked at the ephemeris. I'm like, this isn't the birth year she told me. She actually lied about her age, even. Anyway, a lot of Rahu, North Node, type of superfuge going on in all directions. You know, I had her chart without the ascendant. I had my chart. I had our plants. I had our aspects. And I just figured out the aspects and the inter-aspects to understand the dynamics of why things work this way they were. And when I understood why they worked that way, I was able to accept it. And then within two weeks of, from starting getting that chart until then, I was like feeling good. But when I didn't understand why, because I had this core belief, I had this huge inner conflict that really was tearing me apart where it was hard to live because the inner conflict is like, how can this be? This core belief is destroyed. So I had to replace it with this new understanding that said, okay, people are connecting, interconnecting, doing stuff because of the planetary energies. And then I was able to resolve that conflict and move on to further trouble. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to put it. <laughs> I think you're kind of getting to something that we see a lot in human design as well. When we talk about it in human design, we're kind of looking at what we refer to as the mechanics. Like this is how we connect. These are the themes. These are the patterns. This is the machine. This is the machine. And I think what that can often do is it maybe in a way depersonalizes it and takes some of the blame or someone's right, wrong, good, bad out of it. And, and you had mentioned the word acceptance. That, yeah. And, and for me, I'm a mechanic. I've been making things, building things, fixing things since I was six or seven. I worked at a bike shop. Half my time, I'm building things at my house or fixing cars or something. I'm, I'm a mechanic. And I really see astrology like this big machine. And I see all of us as parts in this big machine. One thing I love about Ross, he's not as scared to say it. It's how it works. It's the mechanics of it. It just works this way. You can't say that to Western astrologers. They're like, oh, no, my ego is going to change the world. You can't even say that to Vedic astrologers who are saying, oh, Vedic astrology is predictive and it's so accurate. Still can't say it's a machine, you know, but I've always seen it as a machine. One thing I really loved about human design is Ra is like, yeah, this is the mechanics. This is how things work. 
And I've always been the type of person that's willing to accept the mechanics of life. Once I just want to understand what the machine's doing, that the machine's here, you know, that the parts are all moving and that, oh, this part that I thought was like broken is actually turning just right. Then I'm able to make a deep shift with it. But I find a lot of people aren't able to do that. Uh, there's a capacity for understanding to affect people. You know, our consciousness is trying to shift our subconsciousness, right? We're, we meditate to shift our subconsciousness. To break free from all those subconscious, you can say karmas, you know, all those subconscious memories, those ancestral patterns, whatever you want to call it. It's this force that we're not in touch with that's ruling our lives, right? The not self, whatever you want to call it. And there's all these things we do. We pray, we meditate, we do this therapy, we do hypnotherapy, NLP, we do all this crazy stuff to shift out of that. Well, one way we can shift out of it is through understanding. And I've always had this brain that when I understand something, it makes a shift in my whole being. That honestly doesn't work for most people. Most people need a different technique than that. So for me, being able to study astrology, study human design has helped me make tremendous shifts because my understanding works that way. And I find, you know, there's like different spiritual techniques, let's say, different ways to shift that subconsciousness into a healthier pattern. And this seems to be a way that I'm able to do it. Um, it just works good for me. And I, I see it all the time. It doesn't work good for a lot of people. Like, I'll give a person a class I wish I had had way back then. I know what a shift in my reality. It shifts a small percentage of people's reality. Most people, even though they understand it, they're still daily struggling with it, and they need something else. They, they need something else to make a shift, whether it's a devotional act, something. But for me, I've been, you know, I don't want to say I'm lucky. I think everyone's lucky when they find their way, or find what works for them. So for me, when I understand something, it worked, it really does work for me. Not that some problems don't take a long time to understand, <laughs> but it, it works. So to me, it's all about <laughs> understanding the machine. I loved the human design take on this giant machine. And I see all these parts, human design, I Ching, um, astrology, you know, as different Chinese astrology, as really just all different layers of the machine of what's happening here. Because we are multidimensional beings. We have needs on many levels. We're initiating on many levels. We're receiving on many levels. I don't see any conflict between any of these systems. All these systems are activating on us. And at different times, we're going to gravitate towards a different system that's going to give us what we need to get to the next step of our, of our experience, of our growth experience. Yeah. I think in your human design video that you had put out on YouTube, you may have described, if I remember correctly, that human design is describing kind of the fundamental energetic orientation underneath. Yeah, I think human design is real core. I mean, I think that's one thing I like about it. I think it's, you know, real close to the source, let's say. And there's this idea, it's a homo hetero principle, okay? Um, I heard about it from a doctor called Jay Park Wu, who, who really took reflexology to a whole nother, whole nother level. The idea is, is that one of the concepts is that when it's closer to God, it's more homo. The further away from God, it's more hetero. Okay. So homo changes slowly, hetero changes quickly. So when I swing my arm, 
my shoulder is homo, my fingers are hetero, right? They're moving fast, they're changing fast, my shoulder's hardly moving at all. And with these different sciences, they all fall into this different place. And I feel like human design is real close to the homo. It's very homo compared to other systems. I mean, it's really close to the source. Just like my shoulder, it's just moving this. My hand could be doing lots of crazy things. So same with this. We got this core energy framework of human design. But it can be doing tons of things specifically. That's why when we get two people in, in one day, there's usually two human design charts that day. And the color will change and the tones, those things will change more. But generally speaking, there's not a lot of difference between two people born with the same day on a human design chart. When we just look at it at that level. But when we look at their charts, we'll say, wow, um, their houses have changed, their vargas have changed, their divisional charts have saying changed, the houses in the divisional charts have radically changed even five minutes later. And so we realized that we're dealing on a very foundational level. And I think it's really important to work on the closest foundation available to us. And that's what I love about human design. It is very foundational level. But because it's very foundational level, it's not always the best tool to answer more questions that are answered on more extraneous or more superficial levels. Now, the thing is, the closer we work to home, or the closer we work down to the core, if we can make peace with that, everything else works out on top of that. Mm. You know, so if you're living as yourself and you understand living as yourself works, you don't need to know any other information. That's the whole goal of human design, right? Is to get to the point where you don't need to know. <laughs> Until you're there, so you can keep your hair, it's kind of nice to have a lot of other tools. <laughs> right? I love that explanation. I think that's so accurate. It's actually funny. I come across a lot of astrologers or people who are, I don't think it's so much about astrology, but that people who are really immersed in whatever system they've gravitated toward. And when they first look at human design and they'll say, it's so complicated. I tend to feel the opposite. I, to me, human design is way simpler than... It's such a beautiful, simple system. And what I love about it, you can take it so deep. I mean, Ra explained a lot and he explained a lot of things deeply, but everything he explained, you could just keep running with it. You know, it's like everything in human design can be taken so deeply. That's one thing I really love about it. I think, in fact, that a lot of things that Ross said, I think he was literally struggling to know how to say the depths of it because you can kind of have a sense of something, but turn it out into words. It's very hard sometimes. And sometimes what it takes, it takes a concrete experience of what you're sensing before you can, you can say it in words. And it's not possible for everyone to have the concrete experience of everything possible in human design to where they can actually express it fully. So I really love it. Like I'll hear something about raw and that'll get me running down this track, but I'm having this concrete experience of it with someone. And I can get this sense of what he's saying is like blows up into this huge friggin' deeper, deeper thing. It's always very, very powerful. I feel like human design is a super powerful system. I have a lot of respect for it. I know Rob was sort of a freak in lots of ways. He's not the kind of guy I'd normally listen to. Um, I've never smoked dope. I've never taken drugs. I, I mean, I'm, a real, I'm like a goody two-shoes. I, 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 I make myself feel pathetic, you know? <laughs> and um, 
I feel like it's a cosmic joke that I like his work so much, you know, like God is saying, don't judge people, you know, don't judge people on these superficial things. It, I think it's a fantastic mm. system. If we could boil down two of his most core themes, they would be self-love and no choice. And it sounds like you're pretty on board with the no choice part, or I'm curious about your... Yeah, I don't feel... Personally, I don't want to have a choice. That's my personal feeling. It's like between me running the show and God running the show, whatever you want to call God, he can run the show. I trust him more than me because I spend a lot of time with myself. And they say the devil you know is better than when you don't. Well, not this time. The devil I know, that this devil, the way he runs his life, the thing he has tried, I would let any unknown devil take over anytime they want, you know. I have no problems with saying, all right, God, life, you know, the force, whatever, you take over, you guide me, you point out the way. I just want the, the next experience that you're giving to me so I can learn what I need to about myself. That's my underlying agenda of everything. Otherwise, it's really just too hard. I mean, even with that agenda, I get to make 20 mistakes a day of, of being involved in things I shouldn't be. I don't feel the need to have free will. Bible says your God is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. So that witch was doing what it did because of God's power. So why are you burning her? If you believe the first part of the, of the Bible, of the Old Testament, if these Catholics had believed that, think about how different they would have dealt with people, right? I mean, it's just shocking to me that you could write that down as a beginning tenet of your faith, and everything you do after that has to do with everyone doing and going against the will of God. It's like, wow, this omnipotent, omnipresent being sure is a wuss. That's what it sounds like to me. You know? <laughs> so for me, I, I, I like being part of the machine because I think it's a beautiful thing to be part of something bigger. I feel like us on Earth, we're part of Earth. I don't see us as separate from Earth. We're part of the Earth. You know, people walk around doing what they want to the planet, thinking they're this and that. It's like you're part of the Earth. The Earth gave birth to us. And the Earth was given birth to by our solar system. Our solar system was given birth to by our, the center of our galaxy. And our center of the galaxy was given birth to by the center of the universe. It's all these clockworks. And to think we're anything but an insignificant little meaningful part is just really arrogant, you know? So how did you come across human design or how did it show up? Well, like most Vedic astrologers back in 1990s, when I heard about someone said, you hear about human design? No. Do you want to? No. <laughs> I'm doing Vedic astrology. I, I got it directly from God, from the Rishis, from Brahma and so on and so on and so on. Just like these books say. Wasn't long before I found out how much of these old books, how a lot of knowledge has been lost, how there's been a lot of corruption how there's been a huge loss of practicing knowledge. A lot of books sitting around getting moldy. No one knows how to use them. It wasn't a long time before I sort of ran out of some tools that I needed. When I was going through some tough times in my life. And I don't even remember how I bumped into human design again. Gosh, somehow it crossed my path. And I latched onto it. And it made a lot of sense. It was sort of not the exact end, but the end of a multi two-year process where I had literally like years and years of extremely intense experiences that were really driving me to work things out. 
And I would spend two years immersed in this. That would get me to the next step. Okay, I'm done. Boom, another semi comes and runs me down, right? Inwardly. And then I have to find the next tool and the next tool. And there was a point where that tool was human design. And I feel like it made a huge difference in my life. It helped to have some affirmation or some like-minded ideas about we're in a machine, you know, that we, that we have to be mechanical because I'm okay with being mechanical. I always was, but everyone else in the room is not, <laughs> you know? And so I'm dealing, I just want to be mechanical. Everyone else in the room, I want this, I want this, fix this, do this. I'm like, I'm a mechanic. I want the bike to go the way it's built. That's all I want. And so I'm, I'm, part of me is going, uh, maybe what they want, it makes more sense. Maybe they're more right than me. This is how I feel, but there's all this pressure. Getting a system that specifically is saying it's a mechanic. Things work, come together this way. Things fit together this way. They plug into each other this way was kind of very validating and helped me just say, okay, someone else thinks this crazy thing that I do. And so I'm going to go for it. (laughs) And it really, it was at the point where I was like, I'd rather not be alive than have it go, have it be this other way. You know what I mean? It's like, there's a point in life where it's so easy to say, I'm just not going to play the game that way anymore. If that's the way the game really is, I want to be destroyed because that game is not to my liking. Okay. I'm going to play this game that I like the rules better. Like even with like vegetarianism and being mostly a frugivore, some people say that's bad for you. My attitude is if the rules of the game is that you have to eat meat to be healthy, I'm going to be sick and just die and leave. I'm okay with that. I don't want to play by those rules out to eat cute little things. I'm not going to play by those rules. I'm just not going to. I refuse to, even at my own demise. That, that was my attitude about the human design too. It's just I don't want to play by those rules. And if I'm wrong, I'll pay the price. I don't mind paying the price of my choices. So human design came at this time. I really immersed myself into it. One of the exciting things for me was it helped me take my favorite astrology technique to another level. And what that is, is the Lajitadi Avashtas. So what the Lajitadi Avashtas is, Lajita means ashamed, Adi means etc., Avashta means the condition. So it means the ashamed, etc., conditions of the planet. The planets have this condition. They're shamed. They're starved. They're proud. They're agitated. They're thirsty. They're delighted. Okay. And based on that, they're having a huge impact on our lives. And th- when I found this technique, I was like, and not when I found it, I always knew it was in this old book, but no one uses this technique. I spent years figuring out how to use it. First time I taught it, the funny how many people said, this is the missing link in astrology that I've always been looking for. And that was my first class on it, which I consider like just a small little drop in the ocean of what I've done since then. Then I taught another big course. It was really helpful for me. Then I encountered the human design. And then I was like, oh, now I understand these logitaria bushes on a, these ashamed and other conditions on another level. They're actually working together because basically, you know, you had asked these core tenets of human design of, okay, it's mechanical and so on. There's the core tenets, but then more importantly is the core practice, right? Because tenets don't get us anywhere. Practice gets us places. And that is follow your authority, right? Mm -hmm. If we do that, we don't have to do anything else. 
right? Everything else we do will be right. So follow authority. Why don't we follow authority? Well, because the not self comes over and hijacks it, right? And here's the beautiful thing is, the, the not self, of course, is a habitual creature. We've been programmed and we have a habit of responding to situations in a certain way, right? Okay. And so when our authority is saying yes or no to something, we go, shut up, I'm going to respond in my habitual way. And then we respond in a habitual way. And that habitual ways that we most commonly follow, are, of course, are through that ingrained pattern, that conditioned consciousness, but not just the conditioned consciousness of, oh, I saw it on TV for 20 years, the conditioned consciousness of, it was hammered into my psyche with trauma. When that happens, it's in there, right? So we have these things that are basically, you know, we're responding out of trauma. And because we're responding out of trauma, we're responding out of a deep, deep need to survive. And when we respond out of a deep need to survive, our authority is like, I'm not going to listen to you. Forget it. <laughs> okay? You don't matter. Surviving matters. Once I survive this moment, I'll get back to working on my authority. You know? But if I don't respond this moment, how am I going to listen to my work on my authority? So we literally have these moments where we stop listening to our authority. And the logic taught of us to show that. Like what, when you're walking down the mm -hmm. road and all of a sudden, you know, you listen to your authority, you listen to this, and all of a sudden you stop. What is the situation that makes you stop? So on this last course I did on this, which is the logic taught of us master's course, and I call it master's course because it'll help you master yourself, you know, is that there's only good habits and bad habits, okay? The good habit is following your inner voice. Everything else is a bad habit. <laughs> you're either in the habit of listening to your inner voice, which is your authority, or you're not in the habit of listening to your inner voice, which is you're not having to listen to your authority. Now, as we progress through life, we progress through all the planets. Everything starts at the sun, then we go to the moon, then we go to Mercury, then we go to Venus, then we go to Mars, then we go to Jupiter, and then we go to Saturn. And every aspect of our life has these steps to it. And we could be doing great on steps one, two, and three, and we get to step number four, and all of a sudden, our authority is gone. Along each of these steps, we have to like listen to our authority. So for instance, the sun is your essence of who you are. I mean, I'll rattle these off really quickly. The sun is like the essence of who you are, okay? And that essence is saying, you are a healer, you are a teacher, you are this. And things come into our life that say, you are this, or are you this? Astrology came to life, are you this? Hell yeah, I'm that, okay? Being able to say yes or no, to respond yes or no out of our authority to what we are as it comes into our life, is the step of the sun. So a person can be in touch with that. They can say, oh yeah, I'm that. Or they can go, oh, I've got issues around my essence of who I am. I'm traumatized. I have no self-esteem. I've been belittled. I'm a fish who's, who was told to climb a tree. So at that moment, when something comes that's them, there's no way they can hear their inner voice. They're stuck on step one. Once we know the essence of who we are, once we hear the yes to that, the rest of our life can move forward. So we have the essence of what we are. And then we're born on earth. And you can look at this as line one. Mm -hmm. It's your foundation of your essence of who you are. You have to grasp it. You got to get the yes to I am this, like a one, three person. They're useless because they don't know who they are, right? 
That's not a nice word, but they're running around. What am I? Who am I? They need to get their foundation of their self. Well, the sun does that for everyone. One, one, three person figures out at 20, another one doesn't know it's 60. Because when it comes to the authority of the sun, they can't listen to their inner voice on that level of this is what you are. This is your essence. Now, the sun is just your essence. It's the essence of the light that you want to shine on earth. Okay. That's shining through you. Then you get to the real world. And the real world is like, all right, it doesn't work this way. You're a healer, but you can't just snap your fingers and heal someone. In this world, there's possibilities, right? You have to adapt to the, to the reality. You could be an acupuncture. You could be a medical doctor. You could be a massage therapist. These are the, the ways that healing happens down here. We don't care that your essence is a healer and that if we weren't here, you could just snap your fingers and heal someone. Here, you have to adapt to those options. So now you have to adapt who you are to the realities of the world. So as life comes, somebody comes up to you and says, do you want to do this? The inner voice will say yes, because it knows that's an adaption that's going to work for it. Do you want to be an acupuncture? Yeah, I do. Do you want to be an acupuncture? No, I want to be snapping my fingers and healing people. So no, I'm not going to be acupuncture. You know, you see how someone wouldn't get anywhere. So whatever we are, on a soul level of the sun, we're so much more than that. And so we're constantly adapting what we are so that we can be what we are and get our needs met in this world. On a very basic level, I'm, a, I'm light and I'm energy. And that energy is intelligent is what I really am. The reality is I still have to eat something here. That's the moon too. I respond, do I eat this or do I eat that? What do I respond to, right? Yes, I'm all abundant light and energy, but the reality is I have to be in the right environment for me. That's also the moon. Am I saying yes to the right environment or saying wrong to the no environment? You know, so that's like line two of being open to following the right message of where to go. Like Ra calls line two, like the calling, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Are you going to answer the phone? Are you going to call? Are you going to listen to that calling? Oh, that ice cream is calling for me. That <laughs> chick is calling me. None of these things are my essence of light, but I have to go down the road where my essence of life can shine the brightest in a diminished form, but it's still the form that's right for me, right? Because the acupuncturist is diminished compared to someone who can snap his fingers, right? <laughs> to heal. If the moon's in one of these good conditions, then yeah, on that level, a person is responding to the right calling. And the moon is so important because it's the responding planet. We respond through the moon. You know, it's step two. So much of what Ra is teaching with human design really requires us to be willing to adapt and say yes to the things that are right, not to the perfect things, right? Mm -hmm. There's nothing perfect, right? Yeah, yeah. There's only this is the right avenue in a limited world, in the real world of limitations. There's this level where we have to decide what we're going to allow into our space, what are we going to allow into our environment, because it really is who we are. And it's going to support that or it's not. And this just gives us the start of it. After that, we go to the third plan, which is Mercury, which is the planet where I test things and I try things and most things fail, just like line three. Most he tries most things, most things don't work. That's Mercury. We have to have the ability, if Mercury is in one of these good conditions, then we'll try something, not because it's going to work. We'll try something because trying that helps get us to the next step. That's what line three is all about, ultimately. And that's what Mercury is all about, the third planet in sequence from the, the sun. 
if on this level of, am I willing to try this? Am I going to try the things that are right for me to try? But at that point, Mercury is saying yes or no, the, the inner voice of Mercury. So if a person has this idea that, oh, I only do things that work, I only do things that are guaranteed, they're never going to try anything. But when, they, when there's a chance to try something, they'll ask questions about them, they'll say no. They'll say no. When their authority is saying, yeah, you need to try this, because trying this, no, you don't want to be this. But trying this is going to connect you to the next dot that's going mm-hmm. to take you there. Mercury is a planet of, of journeying. It's like, okay, let's take a walk, see where we go, okay? Let's just see where this road leads to. And you'll see some people are stuck on that level, right? So it's about trying all your options. And not only that, trying all your options differently every time. So you have a relationship and, you know, say things go south. But then the person comes up and say, okay, I'm sorry that happened. How about we try this? At this point, you can say, well, okay, that's a new idea. Let's try it. Your inner voice might say, let's try it. Your inner voice might say, let's not try it. People with a bad Mercury, how they'll respond is, gosh, I don't have any other option. Shut up, inner voice. Don't say no, because I have no other options. I better run with this option. One of the main problems with a bad condition Mercury is people are literally responding out of the fear that they have no other option. And they're saying yes to things. I call them their own worst used car salesmen. You know, Hmm. they literally are convincing themselves something that's not working is good because they feel there's no other options. Whereas line three and Mercury is like, oh, I tried that, I know it doesn't work, I'll never try that again. I'll try that person again, but in a different way. And when I've tried every way possible that I can try and it still hasn't worked, I'll never even try that person again, you know, or that job again or whatever. So it's always a good Mercury, try something, it learns from it, try something else, it learns from it, try something else, learns from it. And as it does that, the picture of what's really going to work emerges. With anything respect to that, the condition of Mercury determines if we're going to listen to our inner voice or we're going to respond out of some habit, you know, based on some conscious trauma again. And so like Mercury could be start. If you're responding out of starvation, I will have no other options. This is the only chance for me to have this good thing. If you're responding out of that, that's not healthy, right? You're responding out of starvation, out of lack. Then we get to Venus. Venus is the plan that says, this is a good thing. This is valuable. This gives me something back. Yes, I have to take care of it. I have to manage it. But it gives me something back that I need. So finally, I have my foundation. I have something I can stand on. And from here, I have something useful. And I take care of it because it's useful. And so now I can build higher. When you say, do you want this? You, you know, you, we wanted it ultimately to keep if it's useful. The first level we keep something on, it's when it's useful to our journey. And our inner voice has to know, is this useful or not? So whenever it comes to, are you going to keep this long term? That's Venus. And Venus only keeps things long-term if it's a two-way, mutually beneficial stream. Why does it have to be two-way? Because if it's only one way serving you, the other person's going to deteriorate and die and disappear. You can get one-way things, but they never last. And you can give one-way things, but you can never keep it up forever. And one-way things are important too. But Venus is the stage of a mutual two-way street of mutual support, of building a mutual foundation. It rules marriage for that reason. It's not the end of the road. It's the middle, okay? 
we have our inner voice has to recognize that this is valuable. What if there's all this trauma revolving around Venus and the person doesn't want the valuable relationship? Next thing you know, they're back with their old boyfriend drug addict. Like, why did your why are you there? Your inner voice, do you think it really wants you there? Probably not. But they're not choosing out of their inner voice. So whenever it comes to keeping something, well, we're dealing with things on another level. Our inner voice is, has to respond to a whole nother another scene in our lives, a whole nother situation. So that's the funny thing. The inner voice works great, 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 and crash and burn all of a sudden. And so by looking at the conditions of the planet, we can actually see where they're going to crash and burn. Okay, now after Venus, we get to Mars. I had to fight for this. No one's going to give me permission. No one's going to say it's okay. God's not going to give me an excuse note. Ernst gets to do this. Show this when you walk out the door, you know? No, none of that's going to happen. You have to be willing to fight for it and go for it. And when Mars is in a bad condition, a person doesn't fight for the right thing. There's a point we have to say, yes, I'm going to fight for the right thing. And so a person can be going along perfectly in life, and all of a sudden, when their authority says fight for the right thing, they go, no, I can't do that. And they won't. Or their inner voice say, don't fight for that thing. They go, oh, I better fight for this thing. Their mind will say it. That's the step they fail. That's a step. Then after that, we get to Jupiter. And Jupiter the, is like line six. Um, it's the final thing. It's the end of the road. After that, there's only Saturn, which is the end. So Jupiter is the point of, ultimately, we want to get to the Jupiter point, which is we want to get to a point of highest fulfillment where we're gonna be as good as we can be. Jupiter is the good planet, the planet of goodness. We start out with the essence of their sun. If that essence is a healer, we wanna be a good healer. We don't wanna be a shitty healer, right? So Jupiter is the point where we get to where we do something good and it, it needs to be our essence. So do we respond to what's good in us? Do we do the good thing? I mean, literally this sounds so basic. Of course I do the good thing. I think that's the problem. The good thing is also out of the inner voice. Do I want to give this person $1,000 for charity? Well, they might like me. Sure, I'll give it to them. That would be a nice thing to do and make me look good. I'll give it to them. No, that's all bullshit. When we do the good thing, does our inner voice say do it? Or does it say not do it? Because sometimes the inner voice says, gosh, you better not. Like one time, a friend of mine needed to move. They said they needed some money to move and they really needed to move. Da, da, da. My inner voice saying, no, don't give them money to move. And I was like, gosh, you know, they're a really good friend. Ah, be such a heel. I better give them the money. They're going to listen to this, unfortunately. I'll give them the money. I, I gave her the money to move, right? She moved and her, everything went to hell. Six weeks later, I need you. I need money to move back. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I'll say, okay, I said, I'll give you money to move back, but we have a new rule. I don't follow this rule, okay? Because you should never have rules. Rules are bad habits, right? Your only rule is follow the inner voice. But I just said it. I said, there's a new rule. Next time you want to move, you don't have money, you just don't move, okay? She goes, all right, I won't move ever again if I don't have money, right? <laughs> but she was really getting beat up, right? So I gave her some money so she could move and get back square one. And of course, 
Next time I know if she needs money or anyone else needs money, needs some charity, which is a good thing, which is a Jupiter thing, I got to listen to my inner voice. But maybe one time she'll need money and I'll, I'll say, my inner voice will say yes. And I'll say, how about we break that rule? <laughs> you know, I give you some money to move. <laughs> so we'll just see what comes up. Hopefully nothing. Hopefully she'll make a million dollars. Even when it comes to doing good things, there's a point where people's inner voice saying, yes, do this good thing. And they go, they slink into selfishness because they have such a lack around their abundance because Jupiter's our abundance that allows us to do good things. It's not the abundance of how much money is in the bank. It's the abundance within ourselves, the goodness within ourselves. Do we let it flow or do we hinge back and say, oh, if I give that, maybe I'll have less, maybe I'll get in trouble because they don't have faith, right? If you have faith, you can give out of abundance. But if not, you hold on to everything, become a little miser. When we do something, are we doing it the right thing out of goodness? Or are we not doing something out of goodness? Or we do something to look good, but we're not really feeling good? Or we really don't have the abundance? This is a hundred video course. I'm giving you in five minutes. <laughs> it's a hundred videos long, okay? Yeah. Because these are just some really general ideas, okay? Now let's just get to Saturn real quick. Saturn is the end. It's done. I love it and leave it. I drop it. I'm finished with it. I flush the toilet. There's a point you say, I'm done. Our inner voice has to say, okay, it's over. But we'll say, oh, it's over. You hurt me. Oh, I'm crying here. Well, that has nothing to do with your inner voice. Sometimes people will never let things end. Inner voice saying, it's over. It's over. And you're like, no, it can't be over. You know, <laughs> there's a point where things end. It's so our inner voice works through Saturn or authority to, to help us here. Yes, it's over. Do you want this to end? Yes. I got Mars with Saturn. People say, you want to still do this? Sure, let's do it. <laughs> you know? Because my star Saturn is like, oh, if I let things end, oh my gosh, I'll be a bad person, you know? You know, and I'm, I'm my inner voice saying, let it end. There's nothing here anymore, you know? <laughs> There's this different stages we literally get stuck on. Even on like little things, like the toaster break. And I'm fixing the, trying to fix the toaster, getting cut on sharp little metal pieces. And my inner voice says, you're never going to fix the toaster. Don't even try. Just go buy. It's only $7. Go buy a new one. And I'll be fixing it. And then I'll get stuck and I can't fix it. You know what I do? I'll take it to the trash can and I'll put it in the trash can. I'll beat it to a pulp. Because if I don't, the next day I'll get it out of the trash can <laughs> and try it all over again, no matter what my inner voice says. Because my dumb voice is going to say, I can fix anything. I hate wasting things. It's not good to waste things. I can fix it. Even my inner voice saying, throw the toaster away. Same with people, same with everything. Some things are not worth fixing or they're not your job to fix. The guy who fixes toasters can fix the toaster maybe, you know? The, all I'm saying is there's a simple part of life about saying, I stop, I quit. Saturn is dumb. He's lazy. He has a lame leg, so he limps and he's slow. He's tired and he doesn't speak much. Why? Because he's not supposed to do anything. He's supposed to say, okay, I'm all these things. I have no ideas. I'm dumb. I got nothing to say. And I got a broken leg. I can't even lift anything. So it's that, you know, and our inner voice needs to tell us that too. With each of these planets, how it works is a planet has friends and enemies, basically. And then there's some other side roles, but friends basically support a planet and enemies hurt a planet. And they all do it in different ways. 
the sun, Mars, and moon hurt Saturn. Mercury and Venus help Saturn. So there's more planets that hurt Saturn than planets that help Saturn. That's why Saturn has a bad reputation. It's not because Saturn, Saturn's the best planet. He's the easiest planet. Oh, I don't have to do anything? Okay, I'm done. Perfect. I did my Saturn perfectly. But the problem is Saturn is the most common planet that's in a bad condition because it has the most enemies. So it's more likely person has Saturn in a bad condition than any other planet. So he's basically getting blamed because Sun, Mars, and Moon are trying to use Saturn in a way they're not. They're saying you're not allowed to let go, you're not allowed to stop, you have to keep pushing, do something stupid. That's why Saturn has this reputation of hard work because these three taskmasters are whipping Saturn, do this thing that's impossible that your inner voice doesn't want to do because that's the hardest thing you can do. Just suffer forever and don't ever give up. Where Saturn's like, your inner voice is saying, I'm done here. But then what if you don't listen to that inner voice? And a lot of people don't. People have such hard time with endings. And the beautiful thing is when you look up at the sky and you see Saturn through the telescope, you go through the planets and you get to Jupiter and like, oh my God, that's amazing, right? Then you show them Saturn. And it's not, oh my God, it's like, oh fuck, you know? Saturn is the most beautiful planet that everyone I show by telescopes to, like powerful telescopes. Everyone's most blown away by Saturn. It's like, wow. And how can this planet be so maligned? This is why. So it's another step. And everything that ends leads to another foundation. And it gives room for something that's workable, that's useful, that we can build our lives on. Whereas holding on to something that's no good, it's like if you don't go poop, which is Saturn, you can't eat new food to nourish your body, which is Venus. Okay, so you have to release, and then there's space with everything in our lives. It gets very involved because you can't just say your Mars is starved and therefore you do this. It's like what planet is starving it? What planet is shaming it? What planet is doing this? And that tells us specifically the type of situations that we decide to stop listening to our inner voice. And what we have to do, we have to heal the wounds of those situations. When a planet's in a bad condition, it has a subconscious trauma to it, a psychological wound. And until that psychological wound is healed, it's going to want to run the show. And that psychological wound is what gives power, it what feeds the not-self. Why do we go over to the not-self this center, right? Because there's a wound that says we have to. Okay? So it's all related. We have the not-selfing, we have not listened to our authority, we have the conditions of our planets, and we have our psychological wounds. Ultimately, we only need to do one of those things. We just need to listen to our authority, right? It's all we have to do. We could just do that. And we don't have to know anything else if we could just do that. Okay. Or we can just know which of our planets we're using as good habits, which of our planets we're using as bad habits, and when we choose the bad habit for that planet. And when we find ourselves doing the bad habit of that planet, to force ourselves to do the good habit. I am not going to put the cigarette in my mouth. I am not going to back down. One thing with Mars, a Saturn-Mars conjunction, I'll just be a little personal here. The problem with the Saturn-Mars conjunction, when it comes that you have to fight for something, it literally feels like you're going to ruin the world when you go do your own thing sometimes. You feel like it's like everyone's going to want to kill you that knows you. Everyone's going to hate you forever. 
and that you're going to somehow end the world too. That's what the subconscious trauma load feels like. You fight for one of your needs. And by fight, I mean you just say, hey, I'm going to go do this. That feels like a fight to a Saturn Mars person. And there's this moment of, okay, I'm going to try to sneak out the door. You know, I'm going to try to do this now or whatever, where all these subconscious fears of, yeah, I need to do this, but the repercussions are so great, I cannot do it. It feels like that because as a, when someone has this as a child, their repercussions for doing little things were way above and beyond the value of those things. In a normal life, you pay the price for what you do. The repercussions are worth what you do. So you pay the price. But as a child, sometimes repercussions are greater than the reward of doing that. It creates a, a trauma of thinking, gosh, I really want to do that because I want to do it. The repercussions are always higher. Because in my life, as a child, and they don't think this, but this is what our subconscious is doing, the value I got from doing what I needed for myself was never worth the repercussions. The repercussions were outlandishly extreme. They were too hard, too painful. So when the person gets into that situation where repercussions are possible, their whole system shuts down. They don't listen to their inner voice. They don't do that thing. And so if they understand, when they feel that it's going to be the end of the world or the repercussions, what I had to do, I was just like, screw it. I don't care if the world ends. I'm going to do this. If it ends the world, I'm okay with it. I mean, I really had to like just talk myself from that. If I eat the carrot instead of smoke the cigarette today and the world ends, I'm going to eat the carrot anyway, because you know? <laughs> the carrot's the good habit, right? And the cigarette's the bad habit. Just by understanding this and just saying, okay, when I feel myself slipping into the bad habit, I'm just going to force myself to put the cigarette down and do the good habit. So if you can do that, you're going to be following your inner voice, which is always there and ready. Your authority is always there. It's always helping us. It's always working with us. But these are the planets that are hijacking us along our journey. And it's not even about one thing. Oh, I want to be a healer. Okay, now you have seven steps to become the super healer. Once you get to Jupiter, you're a good healer. But at some point, you're going to have to stop what you're doing and take it to another level. And that's when Saturn comes. Oh, I can't stop. I'll be impoverished. No, you stop because this is not serving you anymore. And you rediscover a whole other level of healing, right? So Saturn lets us take good things and come to another good thing. It allows for that spiral to happen. If we don't stop the first circle, we don't get to take the next level up. That's seven steps into everything we do. And we can screw up at any step. And our inner voice, our authority has to guide us along every step. <laughs> Thank you for going through all of that. That's fascinating. And I, and I love the comparison or relating it to the lines and that the movement through the hexagram makes sense to me. To get a little bit more clarity on, on working with the Avashtas in the context of human design, by understanding the friendships, the enemies, and the conditions of the planets, you can see what is blocking your ability to listen to your authority or your inner voice. And you can see where you're getting tripped up with the not self game. You bet. And then what you can do when you have the human design chart, you can say, oh, I have this channel and it's created by these two planets. And what's the conditions of these planets? Are they good or bad? If they're bad, you're not going to listen to your inner voice in respect to that channel, of course, right? And then parts of your channels, yeah, this channel is sort of working in my life because you're listening to your inner voice with it. Now, the nodes, 
And Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto don't have friends or enemies. We have to take their ruler in the zodiac sign and see the condition of its ruler. So if the ruler of Pluto is in bad shape, then yeah, the gate and channels where Pluto is are going to be trips where people trip up more. Um, if you want to get into that level of detail. So you can see why not. Sometimes you look at a chart and it has lines and the person's like, you just see that person shining with that channel. And it's like, wow, this person's really living this line. You know, this is one of the reasons why, because of the conditions of the planets creating that line. And another person has that line and that line, the way they're trying to use it is mucking up their lives. You're like, yeah, I can see this line here, but I also see it's only like, ruining their lives okay it's not really working that's one way you can look when you add the conditions does that answer your question there yeah yeah it does and yet the the study of the logitati of this is very deep and very extensive it, i mean it sounds like at the same time there's a tremendous amount of psychology to it that's what makes it big but the technique is simple in fact the technique in the books is two sentences Okay, it's not, it's five sentences. It's five Sanskrit, five or six Sanskrit sentences, five lines. That's all there is to learn to use it. The rest is just understanding the ramifications. And I like to say, I've done two mega courses on the Avashtas already, like 100 video courses. Okay. And I have another one that I'm going to be doing, which has to do with every bad Avashta represents an inner conflict, whereas every good Avashta represents a harmony in our life. So in our life, we have things we approach and we do and we have a harmonious experience. And we have things in our life where we're feeling conflict, inner conflict, right? Those are where we're struggling with our difficult avashtas. The inner conflict is always between the not-self and the authority, pretty much. You can look at it that way, too. So there's areas of life where we are literally having an inner conflict within ourselves, and it's going to manifest in a very specific area of life. So we can look at your money situation. You say, oh, your inner conflict is revolving around your money, around your relationships, around your children, around your work, whatever, and help people understand to resolve their inner conflict because the inner conflict is where the voice of the authority gets lost, right? There's a lot of ways we can use these avashtas. I mean, every time I do a course, I'm like, wow, this course, wow. And I get done, it's like, boing. And then I'm dealing with some new problem in myself. I'm like, wait a minute. I think the Avashtas can help me here too. They're just such a powerful technique. And it's just one technique that works on interrelated levels. The first course I did was on um, more like health, how it's impacting your health. And of course, if you're not following your authority, you hijack your energy system, all your meridians go wacko and you get sick, right? So it's all related. And human design is such a, like a little, foundation to lay all this stuff on and get a whole nother really important useful view of it i mean it's like i don't ever look at someone's chart i want to know how many tribal channels i have how many if i don't know if they're tribal or more individual i don't want to talk to them yet i don't want to do a reading for them because that gives me a unique approach to how to handle them i want to know if they have a defined emotional center or undefined because that's going to cause me to want to, when I look at their charts, I'm going to tell them, I'm going to handle it differently. If they have a defined G center or an undefined G or a defined, you know, sacral center undefined, I don't even want to talk to them until I know these basic important things. 
or defined or undefined spleen and I'm trying to give them some advice because I have a defined spleen and theirs is undefined and I'm saying, why don't you just do this? You know, <laughs> there's certain things I just want to know. I'm not even not concerned about what their exact channels are, but I want to have the basic foundation of the person of, are you tribal? Are you collective? Are you mixed? What's going on here? It's so funny what people say. With human design, you start seeing such a blueprint of what they really are as a foundation. And people come in with these problems and these concerns, and you look at them and say, this is not a collective problem, and all your channels are collective, which means that everything you're complaining about is not self, which means to me, everything you're complaining about, everything you're hoping about is coming out of your wounds. None of it's coming out of who you really are. Or you see a tribal person come in and none of their, what they talk about is tribal or an individual person and none of what they're there for is individual. You see this. Our biggest concern is always, right, isn't it, on something that's not what we are and we're trying to make it happen. It's so funny. You can, I can just say, oh, yeah, this is bullshit. This is bullshit. This is bullshit. This is not relevant to who you are. It's still relevant to their experience of healing their wound and working through their wound. So it's not like you say, oh, shut up, I don't want to listen to that. But I understand there's going to be a day in their lives where they're going to realize none of that stuff ever mattered to them, <laughs> to who they are, you know? Yeah, there's another technique that I got from your work, the maturation of the planets. It's a very simple thing, but it has a lot of power and utility. Came up, you were talking about Saturn and how most people think of Saturn. And I think I remember you saying at some point that the bad rap the Saturn return gets around 28, 29 is often about Mars, the, the Mars maturation. And to your point earlier, how have you been working with uh, or seeing the value of the planetary maturation ages in the context of human design? Yeah, maturation ages are one of the most amazing things from Vedic astrology. One of the interesting things about it is the maturation ages is just found in this weird book. It has a collection of all this weird stuff. And most people consider it kind of a lame astrology book. They kind of, oh, that's just some tantric astrology garbage book. It's not even respected by most Vedic astrologers. Yet somehow the planetary maturations have creeped in anyway out of this book. And they are so profound. It's like, I never look at a chart without maturation ages. And the idea is, a planet gets mature, which simply means now you can use the planet. Before that, you, were, you never could use that planet to its full potential. It's like a kid who's a great athlete at 10. If he's a great athlete, he can be a great athlete at 10, but he's going to be way better later, right? Once his body matures. Same thing. You can see a lot of promise. People can do amazing things before planets mature. But you're never going to be using it fully. And when a planet has bad, avashtas, bad conditions on it, until it matures, you're definitely using it wrong. <laughs> and then when the age that it matures and the year after it matures, your life gets really bad because that was the time to work out the issues revolving around that planet because you've been spending your whole life not following your authority in respect to that planet. And it comes up into this huge, ugly boom. Like Mars matures at 28, 27 to 28, can be tough and 28 to 29 can be tough. Usually, more often, it's 27 to 28. We have this thing called the 27 Club. All these people have bad Mars, bad Avashita Mars, bad condition Mars. So, when 27 comes along, some of them kill themselves at 28, they're done with it because 
these forces at peak, you know, and Mars can be a really deadly violent planet, of course, but all of them, they have trouble with Mars and that's what kills them. It's not their Saturn return. Western astrologers saying, oh, you're 27, better start thinking about your Saturn return. It's like 20 degrees away, you know, because Saturn return is little exactly as 29 years and some months. So I find transits work with very narrow orbs. Having a two-year orb on a Saturn transit, no, that's not clean astrology to me. What we have, we have this maturation of Mars. The maturation year is 28. So from 27 to 28, your Mars is challenged. And from 28 to 29, you're resolving a lot of that or need to resolve some still, depending on how challenging it was. You see a person have a bad maturation age, that stress usually stays with them until the next planet matures. Okay, so you could be stuck years before you get a planet and help you get out of it. It could be really brutal what can happen in some of these. And of course, you might have a great planet and the maturation age comes along, all of a sudden your whole life changes. Because now you have this tool that you've been using well, now it's at your disposal. Now with human design, it's really interesting because you'll see someone who's got like one channel and they don't do anything. Maybe because the planet creating the channel hasn't matured yet, right? And then all of a sudden that planet matures and then boom, that channel's running. So I really have found that the channels aren't giving their full results. They're doing some, but they're not doing their full results until the planet matures. Now it's like, okay, this energy is flowing fully. The tap is all the way on. Until then, that hose was just a crack and then it slowly opened up until finally all that life is coming through that channel. Um, I really like to look at the channels for that. And of course, you'll see an activation of that channel around the maturation age. If the planet's in a bad avashta, though, it could be a difficult experience that a person has to learn from. Or if it's in good avashta, all of a sudden life is working better in the context of that channel. I found maturation ages, they just work across the board with every system of astrology. They're fantastic. If you know Western Greek astrology, whatever you know about that planet, <laughs> add the maturation age, and boom, you're going to see meaning in that year. For those who are listening, Jupiter matures at 16, Moon at 24, Venus at 25, Mars at 28, 20s are busy, Mercury at 32, at 36 is Saturn, at 42 is Rahu, 48 is K2. So 42 is the North Node, 48 is the South Node. And one thing I love about human design is how Ra looks as the nodes as the environment, right? It's our environment. And I think that's a really good way to look at them. Now, we need to understand that that environment has an, it leaves an imprint on us, a very deep, deep imprint. And Yogananda, you say environment is more powerful than willpower. So we're basically saying this environmental imprint of Rahu and Ketu has more influence on your life than your, what your own personal will is, you know? And in Vedic astrology, Rahu and Ketu are our ancestors. So all that ancestral lineage, all that DNA is coming right at you through, and that's your environment. We live in the environment we have because of what our ancestors did to it, right? We inherited this environment with all of its problems and all of its great things. So there's a reason we have midlife crisis at this time, right? Because this is where the North and South nodes, which is such an important part of human design, are like, 
guess what, dude? You're all, you've been on the you've been heading down the wrong road your whole life, right? <laughs> time, to, time to get on a new track, and it's not going to be easy. It's going to take you about ten years almost <laughs> if you live. And the interesting thing is, right between North Node and South Node maturation points is forty-five. More people commit suicide at forty-five than any other age, statistically. If you're going to die young, forty-five is the most common year to die, whether you get cancer all of a sudden, you know, people get cancer all of a sudden, all these diseases come and just kill people in a short time, happening because of these maturations of Rahu and K2. It's a really intense time. For other, some people, it's not as intense. It depends on the conditions of the rulers of Rahu and K2 and the conditions of planets with Rahu and K2. Sometimes you'll see people's midlife is like peachy and bloomy. The Rahu and K2s are good. So the Vashtas really help us See what's coming through, what experience we're getting. All of our experiences are attracted by our subconsciousness. What's lurking in there, you know, is that things that are causing us to go towards what's beautiful in our life, and therefore we listen to our inner voice, or the things that we are pulling us into stress and strain and deranging our energy system. You see, everything works based on the law of magnetism. Now, we don't understand this law of magnetism. We'll understand this law of magnetism about 2,500 more years. The same way that I'm sure when, a, when you know, a soldier came in and walked across the wool carpet to see the king and touched somebody wearing a full suit of plate mail, they would get a shock, right? I'm sure that they had static electricity. But they didn't understand what that was. They didn't understand the ramifications of that. And they didn't have an idea of what we were going to do with that knowledge in the 1800s. Okay, when we realized, when Bank Franklin, you know, found out that lightning was electricity and that started all this technology we have now. Yeah, we know what a magnetism, you put two magnets together, they stick. And you put them this far apart, they go like this, they clap in each other. That's like, okay, I know what static electricity is. In 2,500 years, we go into the magnetic age. At that point, we're really going to understand what magnetism means. But obviously, we know it's an attractive force. That's all I'm going to say about it now. Okay, But all the rules, we don't know. But some of us are working with these rules the same way that monks and yogis would work with their body's electricity to achieve enlightenment. We're trying to work with our magnetism, right? But when we are not living our channels in a healthy way, if we're living out of the not-self, we're deranging our magnetism. We're deranging our, our energy. When our energy is deranged, we become a magnet based on how our energy is. We're electromagnetic. So if we're living out of our authority, we're attracting what's right for us. And if we're not following our authority and we're deranging our energy, then we're becoming a different magnet. And we're going to attract different things to show us the magnet that we are because we get what we are if our energy is deranged it means we're deranged because we are our energy we're not our body we're not our nose even you know we're our energy and if that's deranged we get shown it's deranged by having deranged things we attract ourselves as deranged things that we learn from and then we get underanged a little bit then we track something a little less deranged, you know, and we keep doing that until we're shining as ourselves. And so 
working with the Avashtas, working in human design are the two most powerful ways I've seen to help us get clear on who we are. And I really like using them side by side. And I love how these different systems, this is kind of like what I think you were pointing to in the beginning. There's these intersection points, like at 42, when Rahu matures in human design, that's that's when the nodal shift happens from the south to the north node, right? Yes. Um, you know, and it's also the Uranus opposition. Exactly. Right, roughly. You had mentioned the year 45. And isn't that where the, in the cards of truth system, that the, the deck flips and it starts over? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, you know, it's like all of these different, (laughs) these systems with different lenses looking at really the same thing that's issuing from the source, right? Yeah. And when the card system, they call that the rebirth year, where you get almost identical, possibly one card, different card spread as you did at birth. And that's your rebirth year. If sometimes you're not going to be reborn and you die. So it's really interesting. Yeah. And here's another really interesting thing, too. So in astrology, we have the maturation ages, but we also have the ages of the planet. From zero to one is the moon. And our biology and our being is mostly ruled by the moon for that first year. And of course, the moon is one of the lights. The lights are the most important. The sun and the moon are the lights. Then from one to three, we're in the age of Mars, and Mars is governing our lives. That's why it's terrible twos. Terrible two starts at one, ends at three. Because that's when you have to find out your limits, your will, what you can do. And so the babies are exploring, right? And trying things and seeing what they can do. And they need to realize that it hurts to stick their finger in the electrical slot. So just let them, okay? Just make sure there's not, they're not on a pedal. <laughs> they're exploring. They need to find out through pain what works. That's Mars. Learning from pain is Mars. And then from 3 to 12 is the age of Mercury. That's like, let's try things. From 12 to 32 is the age of Venus. Let's get our foundations together. 32 to 50 is Jupiter. You know, let's do the good things in the world that let us be prosperous and build up um, our abundance. Now, none of those planets are as important as the moon. Okay, because the moon is a light. It's a reflection of who we are. But who we really are is the sun. And of course, the sun determines our profile, right? Then at 50 until 70, we have the age of the sun. And of course, Ra talks all about sixes. At 50, sixes better be themselves or it's doomsday for them, right? But the reality is everyone at 50 on has a greater ability to be themselves because now it's the age of the sun. And that's what creates their profile. So everyone's going to do a better job living their profile from 50 onward. It's just sixes are special. They're going to do the worst job before it. (laughs) I can say that because I'm a six, okay? But the reality is everyone is going to be able to live their profile better from 50 onward because now we're in the age of the sun. So the moon is a reflection of the sun. It's the best you are able to do considering your situation. I can't really be a six, two in my world. I'm going to just act like a 3-5 and do my best. And a 6-2 will pop out every once in a while, but I'll be 3-5 in it most of the time because that's your reflection. And you set up that in your first year of life. Then at 50, your son is saying, okay, now it's time to live as yourself. And if you did a good job in your previous ages, especially the Jupiter age, 
and you have the prosperity and the abundance from doing something good in this world, which is Jupiter, then at 50, you get to be yourself and not get kicked out and live on the street. You can do what you want to do. You're not going to get fired. You're not going to be starving. You don't have to put up with not being yourself like you do most of the rest of your life. So all the planets are really working together to at 50 to give us the opportunity to really live as ourselves after that because of all this bullshit that we had to like succumb to just to feed ourselves and feed our kids is over. The kids are done. The kids got jobs and so on, you know, and now you can live as yourself. So we're meant to have this freedom at 50. In India at 50 was the age where people were expected to go live out in the woods and focus on their spiritual life. You know, it was that third age of life. There was the, the student, the householder, and now it's like, okay, let's get away and focus on your spiritual life. Living as ourselves is really living our spiritual life in practice. So that's another interesting thing with the Vedic astrology and what Ra talks about. And of course, he, put, he focuses on the Chiron return. But maybe the Chiron return happens, or maybe it's the age of the sun because of the Chiron return. That's what triggers it. Because of course, Chiron learned all this stuff from the sun, right? He had a huge relationship with the sun. That's why when Chiron conjuncts your sun, it's really interesting. The sun's one of the big teachers of Chiron. So it's like, wow, do you learn about your wound when Chiron comes to the sun? And then at 50, of course, is the age of the sun. So it's all these beautiful connections between systems. I had a very similar sentiment when I found human design to what you said earlier about there being this relief with the sense of there being mechanics and no choice. But I was like, oh, good. Thank God. Because I don't, don't want to be in charge. I'm not equipped. There's also something that comes with it, which I'm feeling from what you're saying about there's something relaxing in a way, even when we're going through eras that are challenging or difficult, or we're going to have to climb this mountain now for this period of time, that there's something really relaxing about this sense also that everything has its time, you know, that, that everything has its time and its place. I remember being 22 and so distraught that I wasn't, you know, living out my son yet having people around me who, who could say, it's okay, just relax, you know, do what you can now, we'll figure this out and it'll come to its fruition when it does. And there's something about that timing piece that's very soothing, yeah. I would say, yeah. me in a way. It's nice to know all that. It can give us a sense of being part of a bigger picture. But even within that, I do think we have mechanics and all the gears are turning, but I really do think we're turning in this machine according to the laws of magnetism. We're playing a role in this bigger machine according to the laws of magnetism. So if we're deranging our energy, we're gonna play roles that suck. That's the part we've become. If we're living as ourselves and we're following our authority and we're healing our wounds and we're not following our bad habit of ashtas, then we're living as ourselves and we're gonna play the role of that. We don't get any choice of what role we're going to play. We don't get any choice of what comes into our life. We only get one choice in life. Am I going to derange my energy? Or am I going to let my energy be what it is? And that is, am I going to follow my authority or hijack my authority and derange my energy? And that gives us two avenues along our journey. You know, one that will give a meaningful life. The other one that will make us wish we were dead at some point. And the interesting thing is in different areas of life, we can be doing a great job in one area and fluffing it in another area. Again, because different planets have more sway over different areas of our lives. 
one planet could be really responsible for, say, your finances. And if that's the planet you're constantly hijacking your authority on, then that's the part of your life that's going to make you wish you were, gosh, why am I even here? I keep doing this as part of my life is so horrid. And another part of your life that's ruled by a planet that you're actually listening to your authority over is going so well, you know? So we're really multidimensional. But at the end, we do have a choice. Are we going to hijack our energy and, or listen to our authority? And that's a constant battle. It really is. And the more angles we can look at to see how we're hijacking our authority, the better. I really appreciate that about what you're saying. I, I've heard a lot of human design teachers refer to it as just being clean, exactly. just being, being clean with ourselves. And if we really examine ourselves, we can likely see where we're not clean. And then looking at yeah. these tools can help to show us why and how. I mean, I think one of the best things about human design is just the results of when you don't listen to your authority, right? <laughs> You're either angry, bitter, or frustrated. Yeah. What happens to reflectors when they don't listen to their authority? Disappointed. Disappointed. Yeah. So those are your four things. So it's like when I found that out, it was so interesting. I would get to a point where I'd be frustrated as a Jama generator. I'd be frustrated and I would go, okay, when along this journey did I not listen to my inner voice? And I'll try, I tried to remember how it felt. And I remember, yeah, there was a part of me that said, don't do that. But then I thought, okay, I'll be a good husband. I'll do that for you, dear. Four <laughs> hours later, I wasted a whole day. Nothing's working. I'm hungry. I'm tired. I'm frustrated. <laughs> it's not her fault at all. It's all my fault because I screwed everything up, you know? And in fact, there was this first time I did that, I was making a frame for my wife. And she wanted us to make some frames. I got the table saw all aligned and I needed the table saw for some other things. So my inner voice said, yeah, let's finally get the table saw aligned. So I did all that. I had it perfectly aligned. And then I started the frame project. And then I said, inner voice is like, don't do it. I'm like, she supports you. Just be a good husband, support her in this, make a frame because this funny painting is the wrong size and we can't buy a frame for it. For the art show, just make the frame. Inner voice is like, don't make the frame. I make the frame, I make the frame. I get it all together to glue it up. And we had, she had bought some clamps for gluing frames a couple of years ago. When we applied those clamps, everything went to hell. It, it was like popping the frames up. Like you clamp the frames and supposed to hold it together, just shooting them, <laughs> shooting up in the air. I'm thinking to my, I was so frustrated when handing all day long. I just thought to myself, how did my inner voice know these clamps were not going to work? Right. <laughs> you know, my inner voice knew these clamps would not work. Mm-hmm. You know, because I know how to work with wood. I've been working with wood a lot. If my inner voice was not worried about me cutting my finger off, it knew these clamps were not going to work. And that's what I love about the inner voice or the authority, the source that's coming from, it has infinite knowledge. You know, our mind only knows what it has been taught, what it can think, what it can make up, and most importantly, what it's scared of. <laughs> right. And so there's no way we can analyze if someone comes into our life, if we should take them or not, or we say yes to that business deal or not. But our inner voice knows. It knows five years down the road, <laughs> you know, 10 years down the road, you don't want to do this. And it's responding to the whole timeline of events of that decision is going to have an impact on. And it knows things that wouldn't even enter your thoughts to consider. And so when you understand it that way, the inner voice knew the clamp was going to not work. 
It knew that. My mom is like, wow, we actually have a frame clamp. This will be easy. You know, their voice knew that was a junky frame clamp that was not going to do the job. And you think about that and you realize that the inner voice is making decisions based on stuff that we have no ability to even know which questions to ask. And when you put it in that perspective, it's like, okay, all this is through my inner voice, recognizing the limitations of our mind. So that was like one of the beautiful things about human design is really recognize the limitations of my mind, even recognize the limitations of my reading a chart. I mean, am I going to make a decision on someone's chart? Hell no, because that's still a limitation on my mind, right? I'll listen to my inner voice, then I'll blame it on the chart. That's my <laughs> deal. It's because my inner voice says no, because all these planets. Let's hope I never find out and really say no. <laughs> you know how it is? So it's, he's, he's brought a lot with this system, and I, I hope a lot of my students hear this talk and get you know, into this, as I know it'll help a lot of people. Well, I love the way you've framed it and integrated it with your work. And and I hope that too. I think for me, it's always been exciting to see what we've been talking about, how these different systems, it's like truth is truth. And when you have these different perspectives on it, you can see when that's resonating through something. Yeah. And what I love is how, as we go through life, we get confronted with different things. We need different lenses at different times. Same way we need different people to reflect and mirror us. We need different lenses at different times. And Whatever works, I don't care. If it helps you get to the next step, use it. And human design for me was a critical part of my journey, like huge. It was every bit as critical to my survival as Vedic astrology was when I got saved by astrology as you know, multiple times, you know. It was like as critical. It didn't make me successful. It didn't have this mundane role like Vedic astrology has. But as far as my survival and growth, it was every bit as critical as Vedic astrology. I've really enjoyed hearing your perspective and sharing your experience with this. And if you have time for one more question, I, I, <laughs> I'd love to ask, because we were talking about timing and cycles and the larger program. When we talk about the global cycles and we're talking about the changing of ages, putting the time issue aside, it does seem like we are going through a pretty big transition as a species in this world. You know, my favorite theory on that was the yugas that Sri Yukteswar talked about. And that's this idea that as we're going around the galactic center, we get closer to it and further away in about a 24,000 some year cycle. This cycle is about 25,600 years. Other cycles may be less, but the mean motion, the average motion would be 24,000 years. When we get closer to galactic center, the intelligence and the, you know, the consciousness of man is higher, of everything is higher. When we're furthest from the galactic center, the consciousness of man is the lowest. So we were furthest from the galactic center around approximately 400 AD. That's rough. Then they broke it into four sets where we have four rising steps of ages and four descending steps. And of course, we can't look at these as steps, steps, steps. It's more, it's a gradual thing. What happens is, is that the first step they call the Kali or dark age. And that's the age where the collective consciousness agrees that physical matter is real. And we define the world as an atom. The smallest part of anything is an atom, and it is that thing, but it's the smallest part of that thing possible. And that age runs 1,200 years about. 
that would take us to 1600, the Renaissance. Then there's a 200 year transition point to the 1800s. And during that 200 year transition, we're going into the, what they call the Dropara Yuga, which practically speaking is the electrical age. We start understanding, wait, there's something under the atom. We break the atom. There's all these electricities. There's all this stuff in here. And now we're not dealing with physical sciences anymore. We start developing more and more electrical sciences. This age is 2,400 years. And then there's a 300-year transition during which we go into the third age, the treachery yuga, which is going to be a magnetic age where we break the electricity down to its raw magnetism whatever that means. That's Star Trek time, okay? That's going to be a lot of fun. And then the fourth age, after that third age, which is 3,600 years, is the Satya or Truth age, which is when the collective consciousness understands that under the electricity, under the physical thing, under electricity, under the magnetism is spirit, where the collective will understand life as a spirit. The same way we understand electricity is working, they're going to understand that about spirit. Imagine that, right? This is thousands of years away. And we won't even perfect astrology sciences until the third age. We're 2,300 years away from knowing what we're doing, okay? <laughs> <laughs> In all these sciences. So with that said, you can see how we the electrical age is proven. We are in an electrical age. We are in this technological age that electricity has allowed us to do things with. Now, within this, there's constantly cycles of things happening, okay? There's constantly big conjunctions. There's constantly conjunctions of planets. There's constantly conjunctions of planets with nodes. Like Pluto has a node, just like the moon has a node. The north node is just the node of the moon. The interesting thing that triggered COVID, that whole fiasco, was we had an eclipse, of the, a normal eclipse, exactly with Pluto-Saturn conjunction. And that Saturn-Pluto conjunction was on Pluto's south node. So this is really showing we're in a long-term change now. Pluto-Saturn conjuncts every 30-some years, big deal. It's important, sort of, but it's not revolutionary, right? But when it lands on a node, exactly when that conjunction happens, that's only going to happen every few thousand years. So these are all cycles we really haven't even tried to understand from an astrological point of view. And I think they're running a lot. They're manifesting a lot of things that we don't even have the tools. We haven't even developed the tools to understand. None of the old books mention calculating the nodes of the other planet, I think. Actually, they might. Suri said not to my talk about it, but they were never used. So I think we really need to spend time looking at these greater transit cycles and focus on what's real and obvious, transit cycles. Like planets connect, they leave. And through that, we have all these different cycles happening. We do have the Uranus, Neptune, Pluto cycles, but those are still short. When we add a node, we get long cycles. The other thing, too, that's really important, really, really important, are the eclipse cycles. So when an eclipse happens, the first time an eclipse happens in a cycle, it starts at the North Pole or South Pole. And it's visible from the North or South Pole, and it's a very partial eclipse. Then... That same eclipse repeats itself every 18 years about until finally it happens on the equator. It's the same cycle. All these eclipses have a similar meaning to them. So if you get hit by one and, and then 18 years later it hits you again, you get a repetitive theme. And if 500 years ago you got hit by that same eclipse, because these eclipse cycles can run almost 2,000 years, you're repeating this theme. 
So these are these huge themes. And at any time, we have 36 of these cycles happening. There's 18 eclipses heading south and 18 eclipses heading north. And in an 18-year period, we have all the south ones and all the north ones. Little under every six months, we have an eclipse. One is moving north, one is moving south. And when, when finally this eclipse has started north, gets to the south pole, then that eclipse cycle's over and a new eclipse cycle starts. And the chart for that first eclipse cycle is going to govern what that eclipse does for all of those cycles. So we're talking, you know, close to 2,000 year cycle starting, boom. We need to study those things more in the context of humanity and global. And if those, when those eclipses happen and they get involved with other planets, like the eclipse that fired off the corona, also that was with a Pluto-Saturn conjunction, right conjunct the eclipse, which is rare in itself. And then it's on Pluto's south node. So yeah, we don't even know what that means, really. I predicted, actually, that we would have some kind of infection. You know, I basically predicted this type of stuff to happen. I thought it would be worse than it is. COVID was like a joke, you know? I thought it'd be something to actually worry about. So we don't understand, really, what a conjunction like that's done because we haven't calculated and looked when the last time happened. I wanted to program my software so I could calculate that, search for nodes of outer planets. But I, so much was happening in my life, I didn't even get the chance to do that. And now it's two years later, I still haven't got it done. But we need to program search features so we can look at these big planetary cycles. Those are what's going to provide all the details. We can go to this vague thing of the procession of the equinoxes, but the reality is Every time those equinoxes persist, it's not a repeat. It's a complete different picture. This is just one big chapter, and every chapter is totally different. And it's the details that matter to us. You know, okay, we're moving forward in the electrical age. We're understanding more and more that we're life force and we're not these physical bodies. Just like they understood the atom was energy, we're understanding what matters about us is our energetic body, our aura, right? That's what's important. That's why the new age sciences have boomed. This is a Dwarpar Yuga, electrical age science, human design. We need to understand we're electricity. We're not these bodies, you know? And we need to understand that energy is conscious and energy is intelligent. And so this energy we are is conscious energy and intelligent energy, and we should better let it run the show. <laughs> so we need a lot more research to do on that. I spent so much time just dealing with more on a psychological level, a lot of predictive stuff too, but more about growth because I'm just trying to survive and, and, and grow up here. That, you know, what's happening on the big picture? I like it. When I have some free time and I'm not going through a midlife crisis at 20, then yeah, I have time to look into that stuff. But it seems most of the time it's just never ending, you know? I hear you. <laughs> you know how, you know what I mean? Yes. yes. It's like when you get one of these lifetimes where God says, do or grow or die, you know, it's all grow. <laughs> yep. <laughs> wow. Well, I am so glad you said yes to this. So thank you. Thank you for that was fun. I hope we get together sometime so I can learn a little bit about you all's practice. And I'm sure every human design person brings something different to it. I have not spent a lot of time with a lot of human design people because you know I just kind of live in my basement, hide away, you know, yeah. and do my thing and try to stay out of trouble. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be great. We would love that. Sure. And I know that when people hear this, they're gonna want to flood you. So where can we send people who are interested in your work or who should we send them to if you're not seeing people? Yeah, unfortunately, due to all the 
pressure I have in my life due to just stuff that's beyond my control, I don't have time for readings right now. That's what, of course, everyone wants, okay? I am so many years behind work, it's not even funny. And I have so much stuff to deal with. with I just had some family stuff with my dad and stuff. I lost a lot of time. Still trying to get my physical energy back. So I just can't do it, unfortunately. Sorry. With that said, the courses I have in the Lajitani of Ashtas are really heavy. I mean, they go all the way. There's, it's not possible for me in one reading to cover that course, what you need from that course. What I do when I do readings based on that, I, I do seven readings. I do the sun, then I do the moon, all these planets. I go, we're just going to talk about this planet today. This one, this, uh, this planet is beat up. It was a three-hour reading. This planet's happy as hell. I'm going to slap you on the back and be done in half an hour today. You know, that's how it works out. But it takes, on the average, an hour and a half per planet. That's 10 hours of reading. I don't have the time, unfortunately. But you, everyone can get everything from listening to the class, learning the class. Plus, they're going to get all this background information that I would never have time to fit into the reading anyway. I have a healing Rahu and Ketu course, which is on the nodes. Really want to know about your Rahu Ketus. That will cover all of it. You can get on audio. These courses are 108 bucks, and you can get almost 100 hours. I mean, they're huge classes, and they are life-changing. I've seen people, they go through the course, they learn something about how they're using their south node. They decide to not do that, and boom, their whole life changed miraculously. These are heavy, heavy classes, and you will cry in these classes. You're supposed to cry. I cry during these classes. I try to hide, but they're, they get hit home like a reading. With this internet world, it's too big. It's not possible to handle. I'm a teacher and researcher. There's so many things I need to be researched. If I do readings, I can't get that done. So grab those courses, hit those courses. I also have some students on my website they can get readings with. But even if you do, I recommend those courses. They're not that hard to follow. If you, they don't under, if you don't understand something technical, just get on the forum, ask questions. You can even ask me, what's an aspect? And I'll tell you how to figure it out. I don't mind that kind of stuff. I'm going to turn all those courses into reports, like 200-page reports that the computer will take everything pertinent to your chart. Those courses are better than any reading I can do. It's a point I'm making. There's a lot of information there. And also, you're going to learn about, oh, this is why my girlfriend, this is why my dad. You can have charts of everyone in your family and not only heal yourself, but also heal your relationship with them a little bit better, too. So there's a lot to learning this material. I think everyone should just take these classes. And it's cheap. How much is it going to cost to get seven readings, right? If someone has no time. 108 bucks, boom, you're there. You can skip everything that's not your chart. Read the instructional videos and read your chart. And you're still going to get 30 hours or at least 20 hours of information for 108 bucks. Or you can get, that's on vedic-astrology.net. You can get those audios. I, or you can just watch it on video, 29.95. Get astro porn and you're there. Yeah. All the astrology you want. Over 1,000 hours of astrology for $29.95 a month. <laughs> and that's the most affordable way. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a deal. Yeah. I can link to your website and put it in the show notes. And so thank you for that. Thank you for listening to the Human Design Collective podcast. If you enjoy the show, please review us and share. 
You can find us at humandesigncollective.com and explore our course and workshop offerings at courses.humandesigncollective.com. Music for the Human Design Collective podcast is courtesy of Anders Parker. For more information, see the show notes. And please stay tuned for upcoming episodes on the same channel. But you were there.